0: You're listening to The Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org, or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, and welcome to The Modern Web Podcast. I am your host, Rob Osell. I'm an architect at This.Labs. Today, we are very excited to talk about browser extensions with Simeon Vincent. Hey, Simeon, how you doing?
1: Oh, I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing really great. Thanks for being here.
1: Oh, absolute pleasure.
0: Simeon is a developer advocate for Chrome extensions with Google. Uh, But before we get started and start talking about that kind of stuff, um, first we're going to do a sponsor read. So today our podcast is brought to you by Kendo React. Kendo React is a professional UI and data visualization component library. Designed and built from the ground up specifically for React, Kendo React can augment any existing UI stack. It's 80 plus feature-rich components and advanced functionality make it the perfect suite to standardize on and remove much of the complexity of working with multiple UI solutions. If this is interesting to you, you can find out more at progress.co slash modernweb. So that's p r dot C-O slash modernweb. All right, Simeon, it's a pleasure to have you here. I was just saying as we were getting started that you know I, I, I didn't even know that you were <laughs> the person that I was just talking to on Twitter about BlizzCon line and it's sort <laughs> of a gaming passion of ours. So I, you know, maybe we'll get to some some gaming things in a little bit. Sort of interesting part of your background. Yeah. But I thought, you know, to get us started, you know, I, I kind of heard that you have an interesting story on how you got into tech a little bit. So I was curious if you kind of give us a, a story about kind of how you got into tech and kind of how you got into the role that you're in now.
1: <laughs> uh, I would be more than happy to. I'll actually kind of need to try to take a stab at. Compressing it because it's a bit of a winding path. Um when I was in high school, I was interested in three things. Uh computers in general, English, and art. Uh, and, and all of those were kind of broad. But so I didn't know really where I wanted to go with my career or, or where I would end up. Uh, so I, I decided to to go to a small liberal arts college where I would be an English major in art minor and then work in uh it so I actually didn't get into programming for a long time. I took some courses in high school and uh unfortunately my college didn't offer any so I did graduate with an English major and <laughs> when when I graduated I didn't really know what I was gonna do with my my career so uh I reached out to a friend uh who I played World of Warcraft with because I, I recalled that he was a quality assurance tester at a video game company. And basically, I asked for a referral. And uh, then the next week, I ended up flying out to California to uh, do the interview, which was <laughs> when I when I spoke with them on the phone originally, they were like, this isn't the kind of job you move for. It's like entry level. It's like a little above minimum wage. Don't have high expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, But I did it anyway because really the only thing that I was super passionate about at the time was video games. So I ended up landing the job and then uh, spent the next, uh, I want to say 10 years, is that? Man, time flies. Uh, I spent a good portion of time uh, working in the the video game industry as a quality assurance tester. Um, From there, I eventually moved into technical writing and uh, I... I started at Blizzard Entertainment as a technical writer um, and one day, kind of serendipitously, I was having a conversation with uh, the web and mobile tech director talking about the things that I liked and didn't like about my job and the the things that I really enjoyed, the, that I wanted to spend all of my time and energy on, were working on the website and the build tool chain and all the things that took our documentation and turned it into actual resources that people could consult. Uh, and he he kind of uh, offhandedly said, oh yeah, we, we have a department that does that. Uh, you want to focus on HTML, CSS, and JavaScript? Fantastic. We have people that, that that is their job. And I was kind of blown away because at that time, my image of what uh, web development and web programming was like was very rooted in kind of an old school webmaster model where, you know, if you're a webmaster, you use stand up the MySQL server and you, uh, may well be doing like design, uh, as well as the HTML, CSS, JavaScript database maintenance, etc. uh, setting up Apache. Uh, I didn't want to do the, what I now know as DevOps and, uh, f- design and other stuff. I just wanted to focus on front-end engineering. So the next week or so I, I had an interview with the lead front-end engineer at Blizzard and then uh, ended up kind of rolling from a technical writer role into a uh, front-end engineer role as a trial basis and then just stuck with that for another er, six or so years at Blizzard. Um, and actually, I-, I was just kind of reflecting on this before the interview. Uh, I originally heard of Modern Web because the team that I was on at Blizzard was an Angular group. and Um, Tracy had done some uh, angular focused work in modern web. And yeah, that's how I I became acquainted with you all. So from there, I I mentioned six years at Blizzard as a front-end engineer. I then uh, pivoted to uh, developer advocacy because I, I love Blizzard, but I really wanted them to focus more on the web and they didn't want to. So I... Uh, I mean, understandably, they're a game company. (laughs) But from there, I was like, I want if I had to kind of start over, if I wanted to focus on something that I really care about and am passionate about, it's education, helping people learn about programming, figure out how the web works, and uh, trying to improve the web as a platform for the kind of things that I'm interested in. Um, And from there, I ended up finding a, a role as a developer advocate at Google. Uh, and the extension platform uh, specifically focused on the extension platform. And that's been uh, a whole interesting journey on its own.
0: <laughs> so I, first of all, I think this story is amazing because um, you sort of started it by saying you weren't sure what you wanted to do much with your degree. And then your career journey was Blizzard Entertainment, which is a lot of people's dream job and then to <laughs> Google, which is a lot of people's dream job. I mean, that's such a really cool experience. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, what i what i like about it a lot and this is not a recruiting pitch for blizzard i think this is really something <laughs> that a lot of uh, more companies should do is that usually when people are in that qa role they're trying to become a game programmer or a game developer or a you know whatever that kind of thing i love the idea though that that's a part of their dna that you know you were like hey no i like web you know <laughs> can i can i learn how to do web development and they were like absolutely you can work to become a <laughs> web developer i mean what a cool thing that your career is kind of Created by the fact that a company was willing to invest in your interest and your passion to to help help you get the on the job experience without having to necessarily, um, you know, do that exclusively on your own time. So,
1: yeah, I, I would say I've been kind of lucky that the companies that I've been at have given me the opportunity to try things that are outside my script strict job definition and explore other things that are interesting to me and are of benefit to them. Um, I, I think that's kind of the the key uh, in in making that transition is finding a way that it's mutually beneficial.
0: Great, yeah. So then you end up on um, the extensions team doing doing DevRel stuff. It sounds like, and mm-hmm. kind of curious, like I. So what I've heard, and we've talked to a lot of DevRel people, is there really is a lot of different types of developer advocacy, developer relations Absolutely. Uh, that goes on. Um, kind of what does it mean for you? Like what is what is your slice of life in DevRel? Like what are some of the big things that you're kind of <laughs> doing on a day-to-day job uh, to kind of support the extensions team and just extensions in general?
1: Yeah, um, my my even path within DevRel in Google has been kind of unusual because when I first joined, one of the biggest Issues that I identified with the um, extension development community was a lot of developers were struggling with just getting extensions through the review process. And um, Google is an interesting organization in that it it's I've heard the phrase around here that it's very leaf driven. Essentially, the the individual um, ICs, the individual contributors, are heavily empowered to to kind of do what is necessary to make things better. Um, So I I didn't come in with a lot of instruction. It wasn't like somebody was above me saying, you have to go do X, Y, and Z. Um, So when I first joined, I was kind of looking for ways to help the developer community, um, help them succeed. So I I ended up actually focusing a lot on support when I first joined, trying to answer as many questions as I could on the Chromium extensions, Google group, and um, give direct guidance on how to to navigate the system, what is actually going wrong uh, with you know your individual submission, et cetera. Um, so that that's been his, in my first year. That was a huge component of kind of how I approach developer advocacy. But since then, uh, especially uh, I would say in the past uh, maybe six months, I've been trying to focus a lot more on scalable communications. Um, you know, creating documentation and uh, example code, et cetera. Um, these days what I'm kind of planning to do moving forward is much more on the writing blog posts and, uh, example code and, uh, recording YouTube videos to discuss issues that are relevant to developers and especially helping onboard people to understand how our system works, how our systems work.
0: So I noticed another thing is that, you know, you were also, uh, streaming some on Twitch as well. I don't know if that yeah. was of, of your own personal volition or if that's part of your DevRel role, um, if that's something that you're folding into it. I think Twitch has obviously exploded <laughs> in the last couple of years, YouTube streaming as well. Um, you know, Your thoughts on Twitch as a way to sort of reach people. I mean, it's kind of a really cool way to kind of get together with people. Like how has that been into your strategy? Like, do you find that effective?
1: Uh, it It isn't um, part of my strategy very formally, so the the way I'm currently trying to use Twitch is I have to do open source work anyway. I'm making contributions to to public repos, and I'm uh, trying to you know, expand on example code, et etc, or whatever. So as I'm working on those projects, it doesn't since it's all public, I can work on it in public, like literally <laughs> stream the work that I'm doing. and I can uh, there's the potential to answer more organic questions as they come up. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about it, that in in the near future, I want to make this a more regular thing. Um, I don't have a firm cadence right now. It's mostly been experimental, uh, but it is something I, I want to do more of and make part of my day-to-day routine.
0: Well, if you ever see Simeon online, I mean, even if you don't necessarily have a lot of attention to watch him code, you at least can tune in for the awesome tunes. It's very relaxing. <laughs> I had it going on in the background while I was preparing for uh for this conversation. I was, I was, I was feeling it. So
1: I, I do tend to do a lot of uh uh lo-fi um and I wanna say house. Yeah. Great. Oh uh, taking a step back though, I, I originally got into streaming because um uh Noobcat, uh Suze Hinton, uh streams very regularly every uh Saturday, every Sunday morning. Um and I, I was a semi-regular member of that group. And you know watching somebody that you admire do something well, it kind of in, is inspiring to give it a shot yourself. Um, so when I was working at Blizzard, I would occasionally stream uh, side projects where I was attempting to convert cool animations that I found online into uh, CSS only animations. So do the same thing that this person who is writing using um, processing was creating and do it as uh, just using web technologies. Um, the specific person I'm thinking of, I want to give a shout out because I really do like their work is uh, Bees and Bombs on Twitter. Um, they they very regularly post awesome animations, so check them out.
0: Very cool. The last sort of question I had about Devrel, which you know has always been a something I've been curious about, is you know when your developer advocacy for a platform. What's wild to me, and especially with the browser extensions or Chrome extensions, is that you can do almost anything. So I'm sure that you get a ton of people coming to you with just, um, I don't know the right way to say it, but let's just say uh, difficult to decipher questions or issues or just yeah. very complex problems. Like they know what their problem is, but to get that communication out and to understand what what is the essence of, of what the actual issue is, it's gotta be difficult. Like, what are your thoughts on that? How have you, you know, what do you do when you've opened up that ticket on the Google group and you're just, your first thought is, first of all, I don't even know what you're doing. Second of all, I don't know why you're doing it. How does that kind of work out?
1: Yeah, uh, it it is a little weird and tricky sometimes. Um, For the most part, I, I try to be as direct and honest as I can, from from my point of view, one of the uh, major things to keep in mind with Devrel is that you aren't PR and you're not uh, you're not, I guess, like the canonical answer. You're just another person on the team that knows more than average. Uh, so I I try to approach these conversations in a very human way, where I'm talking to people about my experience and knowledge, uh, or I'm trying to share my experience and knowledge and help them get closer to their objective. So a lot of times when somebody starts, uh, I don't know, asking how to do X, Y, and Z, I I will try to answer their question and then say, but let's take a step back. What are you trying to accomplish? And I, I can see often some patterns in the type of questions that people ask. If they're asking this, then it could be one to three different things that they're actually going after. So I'll try to set the context to say, uh, if, if A, then here are some things to consider. If B, here are some things to consider. Um, and in, in general, though, th- this is kind of a challenging approach because it does require more thorough answers than just being able to say, like, here's link to documentation, go. Um, so in, in trying to focus on more scalable answers, one of the or more scalable solutions to helping as many people as I can, one of the things that I'm going to be trying to do moving forward is um is fleshing out our documentation to address some of these more specific issues or you know having a, a repertoire of uh answers on stack overflow that I can lean on and link people to um but in, in general I, I I think keeping it interpersonal the fact that you know we're we're all just people trying to get through this stuff together uh is really important i I think a lot of people can get frustrated and uh, end up in situations where they <laughs> they get more angry or uh, I'm trying to think of a other phrase than turned off that you know there if if you are talking at somebody and you know, just reciting uh, the same thing that you've said before or pasting form letters, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It, you don't feel engaged. So I, I do try to, as much as I can, actually answer the questions each time, rather than, uh, than just pasting something boring and static. It, honestly, though, it is a it is a challenge because it takes time to write thorough answers, and you 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 can't answer every single person individually. Uh, you just run out of time. So I'm I'm honestly still trying to navigate this and figure out how to do how to answer people's questions and address these situations better. If you have any advice, I'd love to hear it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I I you know I I was listening to you just explain that and to me I heard a lot of similarities to conversations I've had with people about pull requests mm-hmm. and doing code reviews and you know I find or at least I've had conversations with people that You know, if you go into a pull request thinking that you are the arbiter of truth and the authority on correctness, you've already lost. Like, if you go into it assuming that any confusion that exists is you needing to learn something... And you needing to understand a motivation better then Mm -hmm. your pull request is going to come out a lot better there's going to be a lot higher quality you're going to learn more (laughs) and uh you know overall it's just going to go more smoothly and it sounds like uh, some of the same things that you're talking about like if you're not trying to pass judgment on someone's use case if you're not trying to say that's not what you're supposed to be doing or that's not right if you you know talk to me what are you trying to do (laughs) what are you trying to accomplish because maybe there's another option than just pointing you at this api or pushing another ticket to the top of a list for review, you know, maybe I can help you and then point you at a resource and you go, oh, I didn't even need to do that in the first place. Oh, thank (laughs) you so much. You know, that kind of stuff, uh, I'm sure is is probably a good feeling for you when it happens.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You you kind of touched on an idea there that um, I liked that um, kind of keeping an eye out for other use cases that you might not have anticipated or Like one of the things that I I do try to do is look for for situations, use cases, feedback in the communication that is broader than just, you know, I don't know how to use X. It's, there's a reason that they think X is the right solution. So I'm also kind of trying to suss out the underlying issues. Like what about our documentation has implied that this is the appropriate approach? And maybe what we need to do is add some more to the intro to to direct them to this other API that covers a similar use case, but is specifically designed to the thing that they're actually trying to accomplish. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So um, let's talk about the actual extensions themselves. So the sure. thing I love about extensions, and I was just reminded about it recently, is I, I stumbled across a newer developer. Um, she goes by Catherine Codes on Twitter. It's Catherine Peterson. and. She had seen somebody post a blog post that had in it um, like a script that you could put into the console that would help give you some controls to do smooth scrolling. So you could press some keys and it would kind of do a smoother scroll so that you could do demos and things like that. And she said, that's really cool. So she reached out to the author and said, dude, would you mind if I turn this into an extension? And then within a week had converted that into an extension that basically did the same thing. Now, you know, is this going to be the must have extension that every single, no, probably not. But what I, what I think is really fascinating about extensions is, is that even, you know, nowadays it's so easy to get a website out there. It's, even easier to create an extension. And I think that's surprising to people. Mm. I think people would expect that you would have to build a lot, get special SDKs and tooling and, sure. and produce an, a thing and submit it somewhere. And I mean, that is part of it, the deployment part, but you know, to just get an extension, especially just to run one locally and play around with it, sure. it's like a file, <laughs> you know, it's like a one <laughs> JSON file. So I just think extensions are almost crazy underutilized by developers as a deployment mechanism for all sorts of aids or supports and things like that. I mean, your thoughts on what kind of excites you about uh, extensions and, you know, working on the extensions team.
1: Yeah. I, I, the thing I keep coming back to with extensions is it's an avenue to let you turn. (laughs) It sounds cheesy, but uh, to turn like Chrome or the web browser you're using into your web browser, you can customize, tons of stuff about how it behaves and operates or replace parts of the the browser with some way that you think it should work as opposed to how the vendor thought it should work um i'm i don't know that 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 power is super awesome i i have a half dozen extensions that i run locally that i don't think are appropriate for anybody else just cuz they're so specialized to my workflow like things that I use with internal tools to quickly take a block of text and then open a set of links inside them, um, and it just happens to, you know, be a, a internal domain issue, so it, it doesn't make sense to publicly uh, publish it. But I I love that ability to customize your your experience to exactly how you think it should work. Um, one of the ones that I use most often is a a tab switcher that. Uh, the main thing it does is fuzzy search, so I can search the domain or the page title based on some string that I type in, yeah. uh, and that that's been super helpful for just finding duplicate tabs. Um, that was actually inspired by a feature in Chrome where if you have the same URL selected, like that as a tab you already have open, it'll give you a switch to tab button. And I was like, that's great, but I have like seven, <laughs> I have seven of these because I forget about them. I want to be able to see all of them at once and then close all the ones that I don't need. So that that's kind of where I launched off. And from there I've added other features like tab freezing and stuff. Um, and it's real gross and it's bad. And I don't want anybody to ever see <laughs> my code because uh, yeah, I'm just hacking it together from my own use case. I'm not trying to make it publicly consumable. Um, but I, I love that capability. Like you said, uh, extensions, The the literally the simplest extension is like four, no. It's, I think, five lines of JavaScript, the opening brace, the closing brace, and then uh, a name, a version, and then a manifest version. Those are the only fields that you have to provide. Uh, I mean, that extension does literally nothing, but that is technically an extension. That's incredibly easy to write. You can even include it in a tweet.
0: Yeah. You know, so the funniest one that I ever worked on, uh, and it was a labor of love, uh, and we I used to work at an office that had, you know, we had our stereotypical foosball table. And because we were tech people, we weren't just happy with having a foosball table. We needed to have it like hooked up with IOT and stuff like that. So of course we had some people that liked IOT. So they put up little sensors and that would co- coordinate to a server which would keep track of the score. And so I built the extension that would like open up a web socket with the server and would let you know when people were playing and then it would give you the play-by-play on how it was playing out. So you saw Ooh. as soon as the game was like nine-nine, you need to run to the break room really quickly so that you could like hype up the last point. Um, you know, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's what I love about it. It can be a it can be a workflow thing. Mm-hmm. It can be a fun thing. That's just it. Uh, Absolutely, there's a lot of fun, sort of uh, immersive. It's its own world type of things that don't even necessarily have to do with the browser itself. It's just you're going to put it in the browser because that's where people spend a lot of their time.
1: True. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I uh, love extensions.
0: <laughs> Great. So a big announcement that, you know, honestly, I hadn't heard about, I, I don't know if it's with everything going on in the world that some of these tech things are slipping past me, but um, then there's a new version of sort of the extension, the Manifest, Manifest V3 that was sort of, um, I don't know when you consider it formally released, but the blog post on it was in, in November. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of um, extensions started getting approved now this year. I wondered if you could kind of explain to people uh, why that's big and yeah. maybe some of the gist of kind of what you guys were looking to change with that.
1: Yeah. Um, the Manifest V3 transition, uh, unfortunately, has gotten kind of a um, undeserved bad rap. So for uh, to roll back a little bit, our our motivation here is that Um, The extension platform, it integrates with the browser, it extends the browser, which means that it has some incredible capabilities. And that also poses some very real risks to the end user. Uh, Fundamentally, one of the most challenging parts about making a secure extension platform is, at least with our design, that uh, we we use host permissions, the ability to access example.com and like inject scripts onto that. That is a, a major part of how we control access to uh, capabilities. So for example, if you are trying to use the cookies API, you the cookies API itself won't do anything unless you also have host permissions. But if you have host permissions, then you also have the ability to execute script on that site. And as uh, anybody that's had to deal with security issues knows, uh, executing arbitrary payloads is uh, quite dangerous. So as we were kind of trying to work through how to build a safer, better extension platform for the long term, one of the conclusions that we reached was we need to change our approach to host permissions. Rather than having an extension, rather than having an extension have access to all sites, which is an extremely common pattern in the web ecosystem because extensions need to you know, do things on a variety of pages, not necessarily known at the time that the extension is developed. Uh, you, you also are implicitly giving the extension the ability to execute arbitrary payloads on those sites. We we, we didn't feel like that was the right approach. So, as we were trying to think of how the extension platform needed to adapt for the next ten, whatever years, we we basically said, "All right, how would this? Ex- how would the platform work if host permissions, if the extension didn't get access to all of the hosts that it wanted? Um, a lot of extensions, like you know your your favorite shopping extension, integrate with so many sites that it's not practical for them to specify each individual one." or for the user to meaningfully read through that list and assess the, the threats that it would pose. Right. So they simply ask for all URLs, which is a special permission. If we didn't allow these extensions to have all URLs immediately after they're installed, and instead try to encourage this pattern of having an extension have temporary access in direct response to a user's action, um, we have a special permission for that called active tab. If we did that, then we have a clear signal for the user that they're wanting to engage with this site because they're choosing to invoke the extension and we can give the extension temporary access so it can do all the things that the user installed them to do in the first place. That's kind of like the core motivation behind manifest v3 or uh, how we're approaching host permissions in manifest v3. But so much of the manifest v2 platform is built on this assumption that you have persistent access to all of these hosts that that we needed to make but, that this is in the world of breaking changes one of the biggest breaks that we can make right uh it's just a completely different paradigm so we're we're trying to as we like imagine the capabilities of what how this platform would work one of the the things that we needed to do was say things like um the web request api which is very commonly used by uh, content blockers that that api much like the cookies api i mentioned earlier requires host permissions in order to modify network requests or block them but we're going to be in this situation where we don't have it, where extensions don't have access to all of the hosts that they want so how do we make content blockers work well in a world where they also don't have host permissions and that's where we get into the declarative net request api um, I don't I don't want to focus too much on the uh, content blocker use case, but th- I think that's the yeah. root of the misunderstanding that a lot of people have. Um, our Our primary concern is making sure that the platform is secure and end users are secure. But we we can't, I guess carve out a set of capabilities for specific developers. That's we're, mm-hmm. we're ultimately our platform is built. It's the web plus. It's not a different thing. Uh, a while ago, you mentioned uh, kind of being surprised that you didn't have to install any special SDKs or tools. Like fundamentally, that was one of the biggest breaks that the Chrome extension platform made historically with the rest of uh, browser extensions. Is we said, what the we already have a solid secure uh, security model in the web, the way the web works. What if we just use that to extend the capabilities? of the browser and relied on some of those same primitives in order to make sure that our platform was more secure than the ones that came before. Uh, A lot of the stuff that previous browser extension platforms suffered from was (laughs) the ability to execute arbitrary binary code, which could then potentially reach into the browser's memory and do stuff that it shouldn't, or uh, reach into other browser APIs that weren't necessarily intended to be exposed, but, uh, were, so I, I kind of lost track of where I was going with that. <laughs> I
0: mean, it's it's a good introduction, and you know honestly, I think you guys are heading in the right direction because I, as a user, know that I hit this on both sides. Yeah, I know that I have definitely avoided extensions in many cases where I would have been interested to see how it worked. Because I was worried about the permissions that it would have Mm -hmm. and you just don't know about bad actors So unless I knew the person or trusted the person that I know that was creating it Then I had a vested maybe Personal interest to kind of maybe I don't need it so much (laughs) You know what? I mean, and so I think people are a lot more aware of that now with stuff that's been in the news about you know various trackers and permissions i think apple has also been driving this a lot with what they're doing with their permissions models on the macs and the iphones uh trying to make this a lot more evident exactly what you're giving to people right and so i think you're right that i the way to break through a lot of that is to give people granular permission or i think i don't know if you mentioned it but i think i saw it in some of the documentation this like click permission this idea yeah. that you don't even need permission just because you're invoking it. Just invoke the action and then you have full control over when it runs, when it doesn't run and, and kind of what it's allowed to do. I think having that granularity as a user makes me a lot more excited to go play with some things because I know I can lock down these things or I know if somebody's asking for too many permissions, I can say, well, I'm not gonna use you until you ask for fewer permissions. Right. Uh, so you know, that, but you know, at the same time, I, I see it from the other side. You know, I know now that I'm using, I, I just got a new laptop last year. And so I had to go install all my applications on a new, uh, you know, iOS. And I'm sitting there going, it's Slack, I trust it. Please don't make me go to five different windows to give it the permissions it needs to do video calls. Just it's Slack for crying out loud. so. I mean, that's security though, right? That's the trade-off, the tension. You, to get the granular control, you get a little bit no- nosy, um, and you know it's a balance that you'll have to strike over time, but I like the fact that you guys are moving towards that level of granularity, that level of control mm-hmm. to kind of empower consumers of these extensions to kind of uh, you know, feel more confident, which will help the developers in the end if more people are using them.
1: Yeah, that that run on click behavior you mentioned is, is the uh, active tab permission. And that is kind of the direction that we're trying to drive the extension platform. Um, the, the thing though, is I, I guess the, the big challenge that we have in trying to reach that vision is that we, we know that there are, that the experience of just clicking up action in the toolbar or in the extension menu, isn't as seamless as we would like for having a good experience with extensions. So we're still exploring, uh, capabilities and approaches to to kind of making making the experience easier to use, keeping the user in control, but also really encouraging and trying to, to drive people towards that run-on-click behavior.
0: Absolutely. Great. So, um, you know, that's kind of the biggest one, security. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think you touched on one of the biggest uh, sort of questions and controversies i've seen in the comments (laughs) that you keep re-clearing which is you know a lot of these uh permissions based things and whether people will still be able to do some of the things that they are doing now um and you know i think it's in in general i think security is something that is a little hard for developers uh because it it feels like you know like devops right we talked about devops at the beginning of this yeah sometimes with devops and scaffolding a project and setting up build tooling you know if you work on a project for multiple years you might do that once Right, And then you kind of forget about it. Now, security shouldn't be a just do it once thing, but I feel like sometimes security is like a phase that people go into, like, okay, now we think about security. And um, because of that, it doesn't get the attention that it needs, I think, like I said, Apple was pushing for this a long time ago, I'm sure all the other vendors were as well, where they were trying to tell people like, before you invoke a permission, why don't you explain to the user that you're about to invoke a permission, why you're going to invoke that permission and why they should approve it because I mean, again, as a user, yeah, sometimes when those permissions come up, if if I have no idea why it asked, like, no, I'm not going to let you see my contacts. Why do you need that? And it could just be, oh, we just needed your name. And, you know, and it's like, okay, well, tell me that then. Like, yes. <laughs> so,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I, in my last uh, conference talk, the Chrome Developer Summit uh, 2020, um, I thought, I'm trying to remember what the title was. Uh, extension patterns, I don't know. I'll I'll follow up with you on that later. Uh, the That was one of the things that I, I kind of tried to encourage developers to consider and embrace was after you install the extension, rather than having all of the permissions be required in the... the So we, we have two ways that you could require, or you can request permissions. One is declaring them in the permissions list and the other is declaring them in the optional permissions list. If they're optional permissions, then you can request them at runtime. And I I was trying to encourage developers to consider that option to keep users in control of their experience. There are a ton of things where you don't actually need this, but it will make the experience better. So give the user the choice, keep them in control of their experience and how they want to use your extension. It it is genuinely hard though. Honestly, uh, permissions are (laughs) one of the things that, I, I want to say keeps me up at night, but that's not quite right, it, that I am excited to think about and explore. Not that I have any particular um, grand revelations here, but it's just a really tricky space to communicate in a small amount of information to the end user meaningfully what the the risks that something poses are, but also that don't completely scare them away. Be- because you do want them to be informed, you don't want them to like come across a giant red flag, stop sign, warning, here's a giant cliff, and then uh, turn away because, you know, somebody wants to get your username.
0: Well, it, and
1: it's a tricky balance.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny as I, this reference I'm about to make might even be from that talk you gave. I Unfortunately, I can't remember it well enough to even remember where it was, but I thought it was a <laughs> Chrome Dev Summit type of talk where they talked about with permissions, again, justifying why you should be clear about why you're asking for them. Is that it does dramatically improve the amount of people that approve it, and to be honest, it's a lot easier to reject permissions than it is for people to figure out how to go back and retroactively give them to you. And so, for a lot of users, that's just out of their capability. They're not going to be able to find how to re-enable your permissions. And if that hobbles your app or your extension, then you know you're just uh, you're sol, or that's a customer that just thinks that your product is bad. You know, yeah. and they're never going to come back. And so it really is worth investing in that. There aren't a lot of exim- examples in UX. I mean, this is almost more like a sales type of thing, a conversion. You have to think of it as like a post-install conversion. Yeah, uh, exactly. And if you drive down that conversion rate, well, you know, you're know, you not going to get that adoption. So it, it's it's worthy of giving it the full attention and not treating it as an afterthought. So it, again, it's good that people are empowered in this way. And then now developers can can ask for only the things that they need, better justify why they need it, And therefore have more people that are actually getting the full benefit so i mean it'll feel annoying now while you have to work around (laughs) it but hopefully it will result in more happy users in the future so
1: yeah i in in this realm i I tend to lean on the existing concept in web development of uh progressive enhancement try to deliver as good of an experience as you can with a minimal set of capabilities and then where you are able to and where the user wants you to enhance that to be more robust and a smoother experience. And, you know, in an installation flow, maybe that means like you click a request all button because you just want to get through it as quickly as possible and you trust the developer. But maybe that means, you know, having each individual permission explicitly described and detailed and the user approve it. Uh, One of the things that I suggested in the talk was um, explaining both what you do with it and what you don't do. That way, there's a clear separation, and the the user has that informed consent. Um, but it's also tricky, as you said. This is a conversion funnel, and we know that at every step in a funnel, that people drop off. So, you it, it is a <laughs> it's such a hard balance to strike, because just security is so hard to get right. Ah,
0: absolutely. So. <laughs> <laughs> For people that have built extensions, maybe using V two, or maybe they don't even know that there were versions of this, but just have existing extensions from before this year, or might be developing one that might be ready to release now. I know you guys have extension excuse me, extensive documentation on how to migrate from V two to V three, but you know, what should people know about you know is this something that like especially if they're about to release or they have something that's already released like is this something they have to be acting on now i mean yeah. are v2 one's going to be honored kind of what do people need to know about this transition
1: process yeah uh that is a fantastic question because that is i think the the biggest thing that people need to be uh aware of that manifest v2 isn't going to be here forever so at some point you are going to have to get off of it but i also realize that that you know there are timelines involved that it's difficult to uh, just drop on the drop of a hat, move from one platform to the other. So timeline wise, um, we don't have a firm end of life date for Manifest v2, but the advice that I keep sharing is I expect that Manifest v2 extensions will be supported for at least a year. So if you're trying to plan out the next you know, two quarters of work and you don't see yourself having the ability to start that Manifest v3 transition, that's totally fine. Don't don't worry about it that much. Um, when, sorry, I'm blanking on the other point that I wanted to make. What were we just talking about?
0: <laughs> Transitioning from V2 to V3 and uh, <laughs> how long things will be available for.
1: Thank you. Uh, the The biggest thing that I want to call out about the transition is it, it, we we talked about host permission changes. That that isn't actually tied to manifest V3. That heavily inspires a lot of the Manifest V3 changes, but it's gonna the host permissions changes will apply to both Manifest V2 extensions and Manifest V3 extensions. So, uh, Manifest V3 just gives you some extra tools to help adapt to that, like the introduction of the declarative net request API. Um, the the single biggest thing that developers need to be aware of, I think, technologically, is that background pages are being replaced by service workers. So background pages were a technology originally created specifically for extensions because you know we wanted this webby model we wanted to to use the basic web primitives so we had web pages they had their own isolated site uh site isolation restrictions using that to cordon off uh extension capabilities made a ton of sense but as the web evolved the web gained the the core capabilities that we were after especially basically in the form of um, shared workers and uh, service workers. So the service worker transition is going to be super important because it fundamentally moves from a long-lived execution environment to a short-lived one. Uh, you you now need to persist state because your service worker may not be alive between the two invocations. That That is a, a, another fundamental change in the platform that developers are going to need to be aware of and adapt to. Um, Trying to think what else is big and important
0: well assuming that uh, <laughs> that there is something else major that people encounter either in their own plans for the future or with their existing extensions mm-hmm. you know again part, part of what we love to do here is to really inspire people to try out new technologies and new approaches so sort of as we kind of wind things up here i would again implore everybody to just go try and make an extension. And I'm telling you, be surprised how straightforward it is and then let yourself be inspired by what you could put in there. I mean, I remember the first one I did, we put AngularJS in it. I mean, that's like, you don't realize that it can be your own little website if you want it to be, or it can just be a little script if you want it to be. Like, I would definitely say, you know, go and play. And there's a lot of examples that the Chrome extensions team has if you just need to be inspired on what is even possible. Uh, I know you maintain, uh, that's what you were doing on Twitch the other day, was maintaining um, and migrating some of those uh, extension examples over. So I guess in conclusion, you know, for people that might be inspired by this, or again, people that were sort of learning about Manifest V3 or have questions about the things that they're working on and maybe didn't know that there was a developer advocate channel that they could plug into, Mm -hmm. to let people know kind of where they could get plugged into, how they can find you and your team. Um, and just sort of get involved in the community.
1: Yeah, um, I am dot .proto on pretty much everything that I can think of. Uh, Dotproto. Uh, I so I'm dot .proto on Twitch, on Twitter. Uh, those are probably my two most active platforms. Um, you can also, uh, uh, I guess, I'm, I'm tend to be active on the Chromium extension Google group. I try to answer questions there as frequently as I can. Uh, definitely check it out there. Um, uh, a quick note on the extension samples. I am actively in the process of migrating them. Um, so most of the resources you're going to find are going to be MV2 specific. Um, Though you can find uh, on the Google Chrome organization, we have a repo called Chrome Extension Samples, sorry, Chrome Extensions Samples, uh, hyphen separated. That's the main repo that I'm currently working in and uh, hoping to get uh, over the coming weeks many many more examples committed um awesome. and finally uh if you want documentation uh, developer.chrome.com/extensions uh that'll get you our extension docs um i'm also actively m- working on uh you know bug reports and issues filed there so uh, and uh we we actually recently moved from Having the documentation in the chromium repo to having it in this dedicated GitHub site so if you're interested in contributing to the docs or just opening bugs it's a much easier flow now
0: awesome yeah great and i think that if you're looking for that google group and you're having trouble finding it uh i think simeon has the link to it in his twitter bio so i think you're able to get directly there um just find him on twitter which might be a little easier so (laughs) well you know We could have kept this conversation going forever. Unfortunately, Uh, all good things must come to an end.
1: I am sure we could.
0: So that is it for today. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this Modern Web Podcast on browser extensions and and Chrome extension DevRel. Uh, Thank you to our guest, Simeon. As always, the conversation does not stop here. As he mentioned, you can find Simeon on on Twitter at dot proto. So that's at D-O-T-P-R-O-T-O. And you can find me online at RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Kendo React, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Come on! This podcast is sponsored by This Dot Labs, a framework-agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this dot co slash labs. That's t h i s d o t dot c o slash labs.